Hi everyone, and welcome to McCabe Curler's Trial by Podcast. You're listening to episode 28 of our podcast series. Today's podcast is a follow-up of our first ever episode of Trial by Podcast, which looked at who has possession of your body, or parts of it, when you die. If you haven't listened to this episode, don't worry, we'll provide a summary of the key case law that was discussed. We will then focus specifically on who owns a deceased male sperm when they die, and whether a de facto partner can have access to this reproductive tissue for the purposes of IVF. This is dealt with in the 2020 Supreme Court case of the application by Vernon, which applies some of the case law discussed in the first episode of Trial by Podcast. My name is Lachlan Hullab, and I'm here today with my colleague, Andrew Gavia. Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining us. So, Andrew, as discussed in the first episode, what are the main cases in this area of law? Well, there were two main cases that were discussed in our first episode of Trial by Podcast. The first was a 19th century English case of Williams and Williams, and the subsequent exception to this case in Dudeward and Spence. Williams and Williams was an old English case which found that there is no property in a body and therefore a person cannot give their body to someone else in their will. However, in the 1908 case of Dudewood and Spence, an exception to the Williams and Williams rule was established as it was found that there are circumstances where a human body can become property. Such circumstances are when lawful work and skill has been exercised by a person to the body to make it different to an ordinary body awaiting burial. Now, Lachlan, has there been any recent cases that have applied the Dudewood exception? Yes, there has. In the 2011 case of the estate of Edwards, a married couple planned to undergo IVF. However, Mr. Edwards passed away. Miss Edwards, as administrator of the estate of her late husband, by summons, sought a declaration that she was entitled to possession of the sperm recovered from his body shortly after his death. It was found that there is a property right over the sperm as it required work and skill of doctors to extract and preserve it, and therefore sperm was capable of being property. However, the court had to consider who owns the sperm in whether it was the property of Miss Edwards or the doctors. The court held that the doctors performed the work on behalf of Miss Edwards as her agent and therefore Miss Edwards was entitled to the possession of the sperm sample. Now let's discuss the main case that we are here for today, the 2020 Supreme Court case of the application of Vernon. What was this case about, Andrew? Well, in Vernon, the New South Wales Supreme Court had to consider whether a de facto partner was lawfully authorised to instruct a medical practitioner to extract reproductive tissue from a recently deceased de facto partner for the purposes of IVF. Unfortunately, she had to pursue this application because prior to her partner's passing, he was unable to provide consent to the procedure. This was due to a random brain hemorrhage which left him in a vegetable-like state which lasted up until his ultimate passing. Lachlan, what was the applicant seeking from the court? The applicant was seeking a declaration that she could authorise the extraction and storage of her partner's genetic material so that in the future she could use it for IVF. This was possible under Section 24, subparagraph 3 of the Human Tissue Act. There are various issues the court had to consider in this application. The first was whether the relationship could be deemed a de facto relationship, despite the couple not continuously living together, which is a requirement under the Interpretation Act. The Interpretation Act just provides the rules for how to read legislation and contains definitions on what is a de facto relationship and other definitions that come up. That's right, Andrew. It was crucial to her application that she was to be declared the de facto partner of the deceased, 
because if she was, then she would be deemed a spouse within the meaning of the Human Tissue Act. This would thereby make her technically next of kin and gives her standing to make a declaration under the Act to retain the genetic material. On this point, the court found in favour of the applicant and held that the couple were in fact in a de facto relationship on the grounds that even though they weren't consistently living together, it wasn't because of a breakdown in the relationship but was due to outside circumstances. Specifically because both of them needed to, at different times, support their respective parents as one parent had cerebral palsy and the other had Parkinson's disease. This meant they were not able to live continuously together but still maintain their ongoing relationship throughout. Now, what was the next issue the court had to deal with, Lachlan? The next issue raised in the application was quite complicated, so bear with me. Under the Human Tissue Act, a living spouse can authorise the removal of genetic tissue from a person in circumstances where they haven't consented or are incapable of consenting. However, the Assisted Reproductive Treatment Act, otherwise known as the ART Act, makes it illegal for an ART provider to supply a gamete or an embryo to another person where the provider of the genetic material has not consented. It makes it an offence to store genetic material in the absence of consent of the provider. So, as you might have picked up on, there's an inconsistency between the acts. While the Human Tissue Act allows for the removal of tissue without consent, the ART Act makes it an offence for an ART provider to deal with genetic material in the absence of that person's consent. On top of that, the waters were further muddied because of a decision called Chapman in 2008 which found that the ART Act was immediately engaged when the deceased person had not provided written consent. The conclusion was founded on the view that a person cannot lawfully be in the possession of a gamut nor be a gamut provider unless the person is the one from whom the gamut was removed. So what did the court say? Was it illegal? Was she precluded? Well, Andrew, the court ultimately said that based on the authority of Dudewood, once work or skill is applied to the human body to create something which differentiates it from a corpse awaiting burial, property is acquired. Therefore, the removal of semen creates property which can be the subject of ownership. Since the applicant is the next of kin, with authority, it is sufficient for a medical practitioner to remove the semen. Then, once removed, the semen becomes the property of the applicant. At no point in time does it become owned by the ART provider who removes it. Therefore, through some legal manoeuvring, the court says that the ART definition of gamut provider adopts the words from whom the gamut has been obtained. Consequently, the words have been attained imports a concept that opens a door for a change in ownership or lawful possession of the gamut. This is because even though the material comes from the deceased, the entitlement can change as it does under Section 24 of the Human Tissue Act. Now there's a lot to process, but it really is a fascinating topic. It's interesting that a deceased male sperm can become the property of another, and it's not something people often think about. Yeah, well, I've definitely learnt a few new things in this process, uh, particularly researching this topic. It's not something you come across every day. So hopefully you've taken something away, and thanks for listening. See you next episode.